Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Good day, everyone. It is the great game. And Matthew Arrett is here. He is the one and only geostrategic, geoeconomic, geopolitical maven himself. You can find him over at CanadianPatriot.org, CanadianPatriot.org, as well as the RisingTideFoundation.net. And if you haven't done so already, you better buy his books in order to understand where the heck we are in this world, in this grand struggle of what we're facing today. And also go to his uh, his uh, his um, what do they call it? Not Patreon. It's uh, a Substack. That's what it is. Substack. Go to Substack yeah. and become a subscriber. It is well, well, well worth it. And with that being said, Matthew, what's up, buddy? How are you? How's the move going? How's everything else? The the move went smoothly. With uh, this house is slowly becoming a, a home, so that's good. And um, yeah, we're doing our our part here to preserve the the neoliberal order by by cutting back. You know, skip, been skipping a few meals, doing our part as patriots to uh, to do what we got to do to keep the new world order afloat. Yeah, you, you, I'm doing my part as well. I've reduced my carbon footprint. I ah. yeah, I've I'm, I'm I'm all about sustainability. You know, and I'm trying, uh, to, what, I'm trying to breathe shallower shallower breaths every day. Well, yeah, you know, I'm trying to do that as well, and I'm trying to um, control as much methane as I release on a given day. Um, I'm trying to control that. Um, Siege, what are you using? What are you doing to uh, to reduce your your carbon footprint, Siege? I really uh, transforming my entire diet to veggies. That's it. Just veggies only. Giving up the beef. You, there's a lot of uh, veggies can be very gassy though. You got to like use an eco friendly. Siege, how does that help you, to, man? To the methane in. I mean, well, I'm bottling my own gas. Oh, <laughs> you're you okay. smart, smart. <laughs> you could use it as fuel. Right. Yeah, right. It, it, yeah, there there might be some alternative to candle candle wax or something you can you could burn the fuel with. See, that's one that's one of the best ideas. In spite of all your toxic masculinity, that was that's one of the best things I've heard from you, Siege. <laughs> <laughs> but it's crazy, right? Like, I mean, I think people know that we're referring to uh, Brian Deese, this uh, this economic advisor for the White House, who came out basically saying this is a former BlackRock guy, Princeton Ivory Tower. You know, silver spoon in his, in his mouth probably drives drives a Tesla, telling Americans that in order to preserve the the liberal world order, literally that's his that's his words, uh, we have to uh, stand firm and uh, and just suck it up and pay higher gas indefinitely. And, and I, I'm ready for seventeen dollars a gallon gasoline. I I will do my part to fight Vladov Putler. Yeah. You know, it's, it's actually right. Like people will do a lot if if you give us a reason, 
if we're yeah. actually if our reason is satisfied, we will sacrifice immensely to do something which we are persuaded is actually necessary and good. But the 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 liberal order, the rules based international liberal order has it's so vapid and so obviously misanthropic and doesn't care about anybody. Um, they actually expect people still to jump through hoops of fire to satisfy this cause, which is really just the cause of the oligarchs, right? Just the, the right to, to rape and pillage as much as they see fit, um, unless you're not one of them, in which case you get to basically be disposable and be flushed. And they actually expect people to, to go along with that. Yeah. And uh, it's the delusional level factor is, is very, very high. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's the White House as well. Like, now I, I, the, the, I forgot the woman's name who replaced uh, the twit. Um, but the White House basically all the same. Jean-Pierre. I think her name is Jean-Pierre yeah, the Le, um, Lefluy or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Like but that, you know, if you think your life is getting bad or you're you're not paying your bills, or you're thinking about suicide or whatever else, you know, like don't it's it's really you're wrong. You're wrong because we're experience statistical peer-reviewed economists have demonstrated that we are experiencing the most robust economic boom in American history. Not even like I the last it. 30 or 40 years. They, she went full blown, double the quadruple down. And actually said all American history has never seen Best. as much of a boom of economic prosperity as right now. Right now. The is boom it? is uh, – you see, see, do you feel the boom? I, I'm feeling the boom when I go to the gas pump. I'm feeling the boom when I go grocery shopping. I'm feeling the boom when it comes to not being able to get anything that I need because there's a supply chain completely broken. I'm feeling all kinds of booms, man. I don't know about you, Matthew. I think you're just a little too negative. I think you're you're a bit cynical about the booming. There's a lot of boom coming out of the West. There's, there's a lot of boom. The, the boom there's going to be <laughs> a Titanic boom, <laughs> like an iceberg at the hull of the Titanic boom um, is going to be breaking the West. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think that it's been a very a very stark contrast the last week, especially week and a half, where we had all of these summits representing the two opposing paradigms. On the one hand, you know, you, we had the NATO summit in in Madrid, that was absurd, um, which also involved other you know, non-NATO members in from the Pacific for the first time in history, from Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, all being brought in uh, to take part in this basically ritualistic sort of mass commitment to self-sacrifice for the sake of this liberal order. It's not just your average Joe, you know, uh, blue-collar Joe who's expected to die. It's, it's whole nation states. Australia itself is suffering from one of the biggest um, ener acute energy crises. It's winter there right now. One of their biggest and most important strategic dams has burst, uh, over flooded. They've got uh, winter floods going on. A massive coal, which they they're super reliant on, uh, has quit tri uh, tripled in price. There's there's a, a demand being made by the federal government to all regions, all states of, of Australia, uh, to basically cons conserve your energy use. That that includes hospitals. Um, so you have all of this happening on top of the food crisis and their new prime minister is not allowed to just go and just be there on the ground. He was still forced to go and visit Zelensky, to go to uh, to NATO, to the summit, and uh, solidify or recon reconsolidate their uh, their idea of creating this stupid NATO of the Pacific Quad. Look, man, you, you said the wrong name. He's no longer known as Zelensky. He removed the Z from his name. He's known as Elensky. 
Alinsky. Alinsky, yes. No Z. Yeah. Can't no, use no, Z. Right. The, that, Ukraine has officially that, that is illegal. It's illegal. They've removed yeah. the, the letter Z from all the keyboards of all the computers and laptops in Ukraine as well. So I just want to let you know that. Right. And it's ironic too, right? They're, they're Germany as well has like banned the use of Z. Uh, if you this is the retarded West we're living in, man. I'm embarrassed. No. The, the lack of, of any uh, awareness or self-criticism of what was what what was done um, here in Germany and in Ukraine in the 1940s, 30s, 40s. I mean, they were burning books back then. What are they doing now? They're burning books. 100,000 books have been uh, not only blacklisted, but targeted for extraction from all of the libraries, the schools of Ukraine and burned by their uh, their official government. Uh, Germany has is, is actually started banning entire like letters of the the alphabet um no it's it, journalists who are like now covering um the, you know who are, who are providing an alternative piece of coverage of the developments in ukraine who are not toting the the company line of the rules-based order have now new laws that they have to contend with where you can now throw journalists in jail in germany for up to three years for questioning the uh the official narratives uh basically you know, asserting that you must be a misinformation operative from Russia deployed to undermine the rules-based international order of the West. And it's like, what is this rules-based international order? What is this liberal, the liberal worldview? What is liberalism? You know, like it, people get very confused about what this actually is, but on the surface, it seems fine. Like liberal, liberty, you know, common root words. I like being, you know, I would you rather be a tyrant? No, I'd, I'd rather be liberal, I suppose. It's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, when you actually get down to it, philosophical liberalism is just a cover for empire. And it, it always has been just that, you know, it's like every, we'll agree that all it's, it's this refraining from any judgment of any principle of, of value that is objectively true. And you, and basically the, the, the liberal would say all opinions must be held to be equally possibly true. And the only set of, of, um, of opinions that become dominant are those that are wielded by those who have the political power to impose or threaten or intimidate the weaker to accept their definitions, their narratives of what uh, opinions should be the the alpha opinions. But it's a very Darwinian idea, like a you know, or a Hobbesian Darwinian, because they're they're pretty much two type two sides of the same thing um, idea. But the idea, the concept of real objective truth existing is not even permitted within a liberal worldview. That's why you can have as, you know, as many types of models of string theory, as many types of models of genders, gender theory uh, that you could possibly imagine, and then just come up with some semblance of a logical argument justifying them. And just by having an apparently academically approved uh, format to justify your, you know, theory of 52 genders or 72 genders or 1,892 genders, or 11 or 13 dimensions for your string theory model or another, it doesn't matter. It's just, can, is it persuasive? If it's not persuasive, is it something you can threaten or pump money into to you know, get people to go along with um, or not? And if, if it doesn't have that type of clout, it doesn't matter if it's more true or not objectively, it it will be ignored. It will be shut down or, or its proponents will be attacked, ridiculed, put in jail or killed. If they uh, are if they refuse to to renounce their uh, non-liberal worldviews, and that's all the the liberal worldview is. That's what the liberal order has been entirely based upon. 
And it's, it's, it's always been a cover, you know, like we're going to have liberal economic policies, right? Adam Smith. So the British empire has always said, okay, we're liberal. We're going to allow for, we're going to encourage global free trade for all of the, the countries we do business with. And it's like, yeah, okay. But did you Britain ever do apply that to yourself? How did you develop the, the monopoly in the 19th century for manufacturing? Oh, you use protectionism. Oh, but yet those British grand strat Lord Palmerston, Lord Shelburne, all of these British grand strategists of the 19th century and into the 20th century under globalization have always promoted it for their victims to say, oh, you don't, you don't want to infringe upon the freedom of the marketplace, do you, with your nation states and, and national regulation? No, you want everybody to have the freedom to compete, don't you? And okay, well, then get rid of protectionism, get rid of regulation and, be, and, and let everybody be free. It sounds all nice and good until you realize that the people promoting that themselves don't believe their own garbage. Like they don't believe their theories. They just want you to lay down your sentinel so that they can go in and, and you know, rob you, which is what the invisible hand was always all about. Yeah. And that's what globalization is. That's why nobody's allowed to have full spectrum economies. Under the last 50 years of globalization, the, the rule is you do what can make you maximize money for you as a nation and if you have a lot of land you don't need to have industry you just bake land if you happen to have factories for running shoes and cheap cheap crap for uh doll ramas that's what you do you're you you do cash cropping um and then everybody nobody has a full spectrum ability to supply their own needs so everybody is then dependent on a middleman and who controls the levers of production motion of goods transformation of of raw materials into something useful and consumption patterns and it's always those tr transnational middlemen in between that can manipulate the system as a system. And all of the so-called nation states increasingly become colonized and tools or instruments for that banking elite. So you can have nation states that are allowed to do things to intervene, like we see in the case of the USA right now, or for the past few, the, it's, like, it's not like the USA as a government or, or Europe as, a, as governments have not been allowed to play a role in the economy. It's just that the only role that they've been permitted to play because they're, they're colonized, they're captured nations, has been to print money to give welfare checks to speculators on Wall Street or the city of London or Bay Street uh, here in Canada. But there's no actual idea permitted of the nation playing a role for the good of the people who really represent the nation, right? Right. That's not permitted. Which is why it's very interesting to contrast the type of NATO summits where like Russia has been declared enemy number one, China has been declared enemy number two. Um, you know, any chance of a diplomatic resolution has been completely struck off the table by the the different idiots who came out trotting the same line that they re refurbed again and again, uh, saying that, you know, yeah, we, we want a diplomatic solution for Ukraine, but only a diplomatic solution that involves Ukraine getting everything it wants and Russia being defeated. And it's like if unless we get that um there's there will be no diplomatic solution but we want a diplomatic solution and it, it's like you compare that you compare the g7 insanity around the green new deal which is again another perversion of the utilization of a nation state serving not the interests of the people but the rather the interest of a technocratic oligarchy um and then you compare that to the more reasonable um approaches to to thinking in terms of the BRICS that have also unveiled I mean, we're seeing a hyperdrive of development around the BRICS, the BRICS Plus uh, community right now that is increasingly seeing Iran being streamlined to, to become a full member, likely sooner than later, especially also of the uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. 
you know, Saudi Arabia, basket case Saudi Arabia is actually being brought online, uh, both for the BRICS to be a, a partner state within the BRICS, but also uh, within the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, potentially. That would be an, an incredible leap. But so many others. Um, you have Eurasian Economic Union deals with Indonesia, the, the fourth most populated country in the world that's being solidified right now between Putin and the head of Indonesia. Um, like there's so many points of sanity and development amongst that part of the world where they're doing free trade, but they're doing it based upon a concept of an intention to develop. So your free trade works if you don't have, you know, a dishonest, massive centralized deep state power trying to destroy or control the game board. If you actually have an honest intention to develop all, you know, parties within the, the a free trade agreement, then it, it works great. So that's very different from the globalized type of system we see coming out of the West. But uh, that's all been happening right now. So it's been a very active week and a very positive week in that sense. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Matthew. Um, out of the G7, they came up with the proposals of $200 billion and at the same time um, criticizing China for their efforts in uh, the continued de development of the BRICS nations. And there's been recent conversation that mm -hmm. the Saudis, Matthew, very well uh, could be in line to be also joining uh, the BRICS, which would be a huge game changer, especially in the form of energy. Yeah, well, that would be a complete that would that would overturn the entire petrodollar. I mean, if if Saudi Arabia were to actually get on board, because they're they're they are disposable, and I think you know they they've benefited financially and in terms of certain power structures by playing by playing the the role assigned to them back in the 1930s when the British installed the, the House of Saud into a dominant position. I mean, it's only 80 years old, right? People think of a, a kingdom as being hundreds of years old. And it's like, no, this thing was, these were people who were, you know, they were, they were tools of the empire back in the 1920s as, a, as one of many warlord families. And they happened to be favored, installed in power. The nation was given the name of their family, Saudi Arabia, but it's only 80 years old. I mean, it's a few generations, not, not even. And, and ultimately, Maybe at certain points, some of the royal families thought that they could get a um, partner seat in the New World Order, but it became very clear, especially in recent years, that the any that the the use of oil geopolitics was a means to an end. It had no durable role to play within the considerations of the rules-based international orderistas who have their entire you know utopian di or dystopian view of a one-world government, a transhumanist religion. And a highly depopulated uh, system with maybe you know 500 million, maybe a billion people permitted to exist in a state of stupor. Um, that oil doesn't play much of a role in that configuration, and so I think increasingly um, the the intelligentsia, if you want to call it that, the the elites within Saudi Arabia, within other Gulf states, have increasingly woken up to realize how disposable they actually are. Um, and agree, agree. It's a high trophy. I mean, for China and Russia, they've been playing it. I, I mean, I, 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 we've all been frustrated, I think, by seeing Russia and China tolerate the injustice and the attacks on Yemen, which has been waging a seven-year noble fight of resistance against Saudi Arabia for the right to their own sovereignty, right? Um, and it's been tough. It's been really tough. A lot of, I think, 500 million people have, is it that many? It's a lot of people have died. Um, and the West has been playing along and everyone's trying to like, you know, woo Saudi Arabia to their to their corner because it is still a very strategic zone. 
but I think uh, it's, a, again, a high trophy and the fact that China and Russia seem to have won quite a few battles in winning over Saudi Arabia to the Eurasian cause is very important. Um, and yeah, the petrodollar, I mean, the entire basis upon which the entire, you know, post-1945 world order has been based is the U.S. dollar. And since 1973, it's been the petrodollar. Um, that would completely go up in smoke. It's already the case that nations around the world are de-dollarizing fast. And China kept the U.S. alive a little bit um, because China has been hoping that the U.S. would regain their senses. They don't, they don't want, a lot of people say, oh, China wants the, the liberal world order of the West to be destroyed so that they can become the hegemon. That's what, you know, people like Tucker, Tucker Carlson are saying. And I mean, so many, it's a common narrative, but it's like, right. no, the reason why we haven't collapsed yet and we, we have not had hell on earth in the, on the streets of America and Canada at this point is because China has gone above and beyond to keep buying the U.S. dollars, $3 trillion of U.S. treasury notes. Uh, of U.S. useless debt, waste paper. They've been buying it, holding it, and buying more. They could have sold if they really wanted to cripple and destroy their, their enemies of the West, so-called. They could have sold at any time, but they didn't. They really wanted the U.S. to regain their sanity so that they would have a partner of, of, of the United States to work with and cooperate with. They don't want the U.S. ultimately to collapse. That's an important point to get across. They would rather a, a reliable partner. But now it's happening. Now there is a there is a de-dollarization. They're they're oh. setting up the foundation for a new system, and it's 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 got a foundation to it that could that's viable. But Matthew, we have to dominate, okay? Right. But don't you understand? It's all about the Thalucity's trap. The, the 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 falling power has to be in conflict with the rising power, and it's all about the sword of Damocles and the thirteen tasks of Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> this is the insanity of our leadership, yeah. Matt. It's like we just can't simply work on a we cannot work on a mutually beneficial trade agreement. The reason for that is this: at its core, is because of central banking. Yeah. At its core, the multipolar world sees money as a utility, a public utility, whereas in the West, it has nothing of the sort whatsoever. And this mm -hmm. is the core problem. This is why you know I always beat my head, and I was wondering, you know, why is it such a problem for Western governments to work with the multipolar East? This is exactly what it is. It's the very concept of money in the West is so skewed by these modern-day Babylonian bankers, man. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I gotta, I gotta say something. I, I, I'm doing a little screen share here, but um, since it's, it's, it was July Fourth yesterday, and I don't want to. That is frozen. Oh, is, is it frozen? Can you, can you see me at all? I'm, no? I'm good here. Is you it? Good? Yeah. Who's, is it me? Am I frozen or Matt's frozen? At your, I think you're frozen. V, we're here. Hey, Matthew, you're frozen. Oh, CJ, are you good. frozen? Or am I oh, frozen? Or is Matt v. frozen? Yeah, I'll private chat. It's V. Hello? You froze. It's v. Okay. V. <laughs> yes? There you go. If you want to bring that uh, screen share back up, Matthew, you can walk through that uh, over the holiday oh, weekend. Oh, yeah. So. Okay. Cool. Okay. All right. So just because it, it was July 4th, um, oh, what's going on here? I don't know. Do you guys not see this? Yeah. I think, uh, I think your internet is dying out, Matt. So it keeps cutting off keeps going down lower oh cj yeah. can you hear me well I'm, or is it bad? I'm good i think it i think it might be on v maybe it is me yeah because i'm hearing everything you're saying fine oh, okay it's on my end then matthew continue by all means i think my internet is screwy <laughs> all right okay so i really wanted to just read something quickly because it was july 4th yesterday and uh hold on let me just uh pull this thing up 
Sure. Okay. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Did you, you have dual monitors? I think you All right. Can, there can you guys see that? Yep. Picture Perfect. of Phineas again? Okay. So <clears throat> the, uh, the crisis of the United States right now is not a new thing. It's not like the U.S. is not um, almost destroyed itself under its own folly and ignorance and arrogance and British manipulation in the past. This has happened before. Now, in the, in the past, what has luckily been the case is that there has been, um, when a crisis of an existential magnitude has struck, you've often had uh, situations where um, a great leader has been able to arise to take advantage of the crisis in a positive way, or at least there would be an empowerment of the nationalist forces within America that could organize in accordance with the fire to put it out. And you had people like, you know, Abraham Lincoln, you had Franklin Roosevelt, you had John F. Kennedy. Today, we don't really seem to have too much of that inactive positions of power. That's a big crisis. But the point of understanding our history is very important because all of these individuals who died while in office, and again, I've said this many times, it's the source of my, or the a, a key uh, feature in volume one of my Clash of the Two Americas book series, is that the, the, the common denominator of the eight American presidents who died while in office, which is a huge number, and that's not even including Bobby Kennedy or Martin Luther King, who both had presidential material, or Alexander Hamilton, who died in 18, 1804. I mean, there's a variety of, of many other people assassinated that I'm leaving out. But of the eight official presidents, the, the, the common theme is that there was the formation of, of their identities tied to a deep immersion into lessons of history and culture. They all had it. That's what gave them the power to... Uh, transform and develop themselves and their sense of self-being, uh, self-worth, in accordance with certain discoverable principles of universal history that they saw themselves heirs to and responsible to protect, even at the cost of their mortal lives. So that's an important thing that we're, we've been, so many of us have been deprived of. We're all passionate about it, but the, the, the education system that we were given unfortunately didn't service those needs as it, it was designed to do. That's the only way a republic works, as Ben Franklin made a point, is you know by the constant renewal of the principles of that society into every future generation. And the role of education, as well as of the media, play a very important role of creating an informed, wise in, you know citizenry that would be capable of discussing the highest lofty ideas of policy that they could then hold their government in account, to account for its own transgressions or lies or things that disobey either promises made at the elect at the at the ballot uh you know at, at election time or from the very constitutional principles themselves so when you don't have a population which has access to those in you know uh basic forms of 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 intellectual development you you get increasingly um a mob. You don't have a citizenry. You have subjects. You have people who are, who is essentially expect um, things to happen for them, or they they're they become easily a, a mob that can be governed by demagogues who could speak well but have no substance. So, one of the points in terms of U.S.-China relations that I, I just published this day is the American spirit behind China's new Silk Road. I got this. I I put this together. It's a very short piece going through the development of the transcontinental railway. Mm -hmm. Really, one of the most formative. Uh, biggest mega projects that shaped the character of the United States for a very long time. The, the first time a nation was connected from coast to coast across one continent. 
That was Lincoln's transcontinental railway begun during the Civil War. But it took 25 years there of, of organizing for that transcontinental continental railway to be built. Before 19, uh, 1863, there was a lot of work to sabotage it. Um, it only became a discussion in the early, early 1840s. And one of the key figures who was the father in many ways of the transcontinental railway is this fellow William Gilpin. And uh, that's him right there. Gilpin himself was, uh, it's kind of known as the, the, the prophet of manifest destiny. And his, his version of manifest destiny was very different from the, the racists and imperialists who wanted to use the concept of the right of America to spread itself around the world in a, in a, new, in a new Roman Empire ideology and subdue the savages under uh, the, the yoke of a new sort of American version of the British Empire. His approach and Lincoln's approach was very different. And he saw the point of the development of rail from the east to the west to the Pacific, not as a way to like, let's say, uh, subdue China or, or, you know, control the natives, but rather, as he says here in 1852, I just want to get this across, because again, this is guy, this is the guy, he did more for the, the good of the United States in the 19th century than people realize, but also internationally, but he says, at a point when the U.S. is corrupt as hell, it's suffering from uh, over 18 years. It, it suffered from two American presidents dying while in office. Um, one one president had just died the year before, uh, Zachary Taylor. Uh, 12 years earlier, you had Harrison, who had also died under mysterious circumstances, who was about to revive uh, the National Bank of the United States, the Hamiltonian Bank, uh, right before he died after three months in office. Um, both of them were, were Whig presidents. And uh, and you had the traitors, the, the Anglo-American deep state, the British imperial uh, fifth columns that had taken control of the presidency. At this time, it was Franklin Pierce, I believe, who was the uh, a Masonic um, young America leader who had become president of, of the United States. And people like Albert Pike, uh, who was a, a puppet of Mazzini, a, a leading Freemasonic a controller in uh, of anarchist movements in Europe. He was a leading figure within the Fr Franklin Pierce government. So was Jefferson Davies, the guy who later soon tried to uh, become the president of the Confederate States of America. He was also a leading figure. Many others were within the, the, the Pierce government. So things were going bad. And in that period, uh, William Gilpin, he writes saying, salvation must come to America from China. And this consists in the introduction of the Chinese constitution. The political life of the United States is through European influences in a state of complete demoralization. And the Chinese constitution alone contains elements of regeneration. For this reason, a railroad to the Pacific is of such vast importance since by its means, the Chinese trade will be conducted straight across the North American continent. This trade must bring in its train chi the Chinese civilization. All that is usually alleged against China is mere calumny. That's um, um, it's a bit, you know, a calumny, everyone knows what that is, spread purposefully, just like those calumnies which are circulated in Europe about the United States. This is a very elevated mode of thinking because he'd also been saying this. He recognized that the, the, the chance for the United States, the only chance to survive its own decay would be to rejuvenate itself around the most ancient civilization, having the, the youngest civilization of the U.S. right, and the world's oldest unite in a common uh, bond of brotherhood and development. This was at a moment when you had also 
in um in the United States in 1853, he organized with a network of other co-thinkers who were based deeply within China. A lot of American uh, missionaries um, had also brought in uh, Chinese patriots to study in the United States. In 1853, they commissioned in the Washington Monument this uh, this plaque here, which features uh, Zhu Ziyu's 1849 work, A Short Account of the Oceans Around Us. It's a Chinese uh, geopolitical uh, analysis book where it celebrates the United States as being the most advanced civilization that could inspire China to reform and adopt and modernize. And uh, within this book, uh, Zhu Ziyu says that of all famous Westerners of ancient and modern times, can any, can Washington uh, be placed in any position but first? And so this was the Chinese delegation commissioning to set up this, this plaque, which currently sits at the base of the Washington Monument, 1853. I mean, this is just incredible. Now, all of the people who are originally working with Gilpin to advance this, to create the first conferences to, to uh, promote the transcontinental railway, these were all people who thought this way. You could read their writings. You could read the writings of Charles Sumner, William Seward. They were all working around the idea that we have to create something new that had never existed before as far as a society of win-win cooperation. And again, again, this is a, I think the, the best way for me to celebrate Independence Day is to really think about what is the essential character of what made America great, what makes America such a threat to the system of oligarchism, because it's that remembrance of that process that nearly, well, that's what almost destroyed the empire back in 1770 six to, to 1783 ben franklin was studying confucius he was studying the the chinese meritocracy he fought very hard to try to get the chinese meritocratic system adopted in the U, in the creation of the new u.s civil service um he had published confucius's writings mencius's writings in the american colonies starting from 1738 he began publishing that he said that he modeled ben franklin the father of founding fathers made a point that he modeled his life off of Socrates, Jesus, and Confucius. And um, and so this is already there from the very get-go. It came about back in the second American Revolution in the, in the Civil War period. And when you look at what Gilpin was doing, like Gilpin not only became one of the key figures who was the lead bodyguard of Abraham Lincoln. Once Abraham Lincoln won in the elections in Illinois, he had to survive several assassination attempts, and there was an elite bodyguard managed by this fellow named Cassius Clay. Muhammad Ali was, was later on named after Cassius Clay, but Cassius Clay was a leading abolitionist. Later on, Blinken made him the, um, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, which was a key, key point this in getting Russia to intervene to save the USA from the British-financed Confederate uh, forces that tried to break up the, the, the young nation, right? But... Gilpin was one of the 13 key bodyguards of Lincoln that helped Lincoln survive the assassination attempts that were put against him in just getting him into Washington alive. And then afterwards, he did such a job and won Lincoln's trust to such a degree that Lincoln made him the first governor of the Colorado Territory on the, on the Western frontier. And it was to that extent that Gilpin, as governor of Colorado Territory, was able to organize the um, a greenback system. He, pub he printed before Lincoln even began printing national greenbacks and starting in 1862. Gilpin had done it a few weeks earlier because he couldn't get the money needed to fund the, the militias 
the soldiers that were there in Colorado that were trying to stop the Confederates who were trying to open a Western frontier. So there was a war directly from the South to the North. There was a war also from the North to the South. So from the standpoint of Canada and British operations in Canada, running raids, running terrorist uh, operations. There were dozens of these against Lincoln from the North. Britain was very happy to provide the Confederate secret services uh, all of the land that they needed from Montreal or Toronto. But there was also the danger of a Western frontier opening or, or a Western front. And the attempt that was made to open up that front was put down by Gilpin, and he was only able to put it down by printing greenbacks, which is what Lincoln told him to do when he was in Washington, still working as his bodyguard. He said, if you can't get the money, print it yourself using state back uh, treasury notes, and we will honor that later. Um, but that worked. That paid for the, the weapons. It paid, paid for the soldiers. It put down the what's called the Battle of Glorietta Pass was the, the, the most bloody battle up until that point in the Western zone. And there were and it was such success that the Confederacy, the Confederacy never made another attempt to try to open up that Western Front. But had they been successful, it's doubtful that Lincoln at that point in 1862 could have survived. So Gilpin is a, is a guy who played, he wore many hats, again, as the leading uh, spirit of the transcontinental Continental Railway, the guy who saved America uh, during the Civil War. And then he was a guy who spent the last 35 years of his life organizing like hell um to build this this is the uh i mean i think everybody watching rogue news has seen this who've watched our, our show but this is the uh the gilpin map gilpin's economic just and correct map of the world featuring rail developments all over the world that are tied across the bering strait uh this hundred uh, mile gap between russia and alaska it was, you know, Alaska was Russian territory up until 1867, but it was Cassius Clay, it was Ambassador Stokel, it was William Seward, um, Charles Sumner, other leading Lincoln Lincoln patriots who had organized the sale of Alaska to to America, always with the idea that rail and telegraph telegraph lines were going to be developed not just to to California, but all the way up through British Columbia into Alaska and into Eurasia, with networks as you could see throughout the Middle East throughout Europe, throughout China, throughout India, and throughout Africa, as well as down through the Panama Canal and all across Latin America and Ibero-America. And in, in this book, I mean, Gilpin is very clear that it's through Hamiltonian banking, the, the idea of using uh, what he calls 520 bonds, um, which was a, a take on what Lincoln had done also with his bonds that were purchased by the people of, of the United States to fund the development and, the, and pay for the war but also pay for the industrialization of the South that was sabotaged um, after Lincoln died. So that was what, what Gilpin was saying to the world would be needed to uh, fund such a, such a development. And he's clear, when you see Gilpin's remarks, he says in his 1890 book, which people can still get online, ignore some of the racist language, he was not living in the woke world, okay? But overall, <laughs> There's a, a very high, deep morality and strategic thinking that Gilpin has access to that scares oligarchs then and it does now. And he says, Gilpin, that they will continue to expand their work to the Bering Strait. And now he's talking about the rail lines where all the continents are united. This will extend itself along the Oriental Russian coasts into China. To prolong this unbroken line of cosmopolitan railways along the latitudinal plateau of Asia to Moscow and to London, will not have long delay. 
the whole area and all the populations of the globe will thus be united and fused by land travel and railway. And again, he's writing this in 1890, you know, and he's organizing again with networks that are building the Trans-Siberian Railway with the help of American engineers, American industrialists from Philadelphia, uh, producing the rail cars and all of the equipment that's building the Trans-Siberian that's only beginning uh, to be built in 1890. That That's all happening with one international network. You have, you have other co-thinkers working with this network in Japan with the Meiji Restoration fighting. Will the Meiji government be pro-British? Will they, will they adopt a samurai uh, imperial paradigm or will they adopt a, you know, a real win-win cooperation development paradigm? Which, which will it be? And there was a big fight over which direction Japan was going to go. Unfortunately, we know what direction they were ultimately pulled in. However, there was a big fight over going in, in a more healthy direction. Um, China as well, there was a push for massive reform that could have really changed the direction in a, in a positive way earlier. Um, which ultimately didn't work. But nonetheless, nonetheless, throughout this, this process, all the way up until 1890, you had things like the, the Seward-Burlingham Treaty. So William Seward, the guy who organized the sale of Alaska, who was pushing to annex Canada uh, after you know Britain had so openly funded the South and was found guilty at one of the first international courts. The first international court case ever was featured featuring the uh, Britain being found guilty for funding the Confederate cause and providing warships to help the, the Confederate South break free. And, uh, and they were found guilty and they had to pay a lot of money. But William Seward wanted, instead of them paying money, he said, just give us Canada. <laughs> and, uh, and that at the time, I'm not for that today, but at the time with America having a very different character than the USA of the post JFK years, that would have been a fine thing. It would have been a lawful thing. But Seward also organized the Seward-Burlingham Treaty, which was an important treaty that basically got rid of the idea of an Anglo-American special relationship and instead made America's primary partner on, in the world, China. And it gave China um, special uh, economic zones of cooperation with the United States. It gave them free access to U.S. education, and it gave a reciprocal access of U.S. citizens to work and to learn in China. Um, there was a huge influx of Chinese students who began studying all across universities in the United States, including one special student by the name of Sun Yat-sen. You guys know Sun Yat-sen, right? Sun Yat-sen was a, a, an absolute terrible communist. Um, <laughs> He, uh, what else? He was working with Paul Robeson in order to overthrow America and, <laughs> and like, and that communist revolution, like totally didn't like happen that, that, that's what we yeah. know of Sun Yat-sen. Actually, nobody yeah, knows but, about Sun Yat-sen. No, that's, that's the, the best. Uh, <laughs> they the just label of, you. Uh, and this is the problem with Western thinking. It's so damn binary. It's yeah. either one or zero, black or white, up or down, red or blue, that the nuances, which is in every form of geopolitics, it's very, you know, the nuances are basically birthed within the complexities of human interaction that takes place on a national scale is lost. You Absolutely. cannot understand the world if you have a binary thinking. If you have a yeah. binary thinking, it's, uh, you know, input, output, you, you're missing everything. Why don't you break down for us, Maddie, who uh, 
Sonia Tsenyas. You got it, man. I mean, this is a guy who was studying in the United States, in Hawaii, because of the Seward Burlingham Treaty. He was brought in. Um, he adopted Christianity, and uh, but he didn't only adopt Christianity. He remained a Confucius Christian. Um, he studied the policies of Lincoln. He studied geopolitics. He studied the American system school of Alexander Hamilton, national banking, what protectionism is. And he had this burning fire inside of him to liberate China from the feudal system that had caused such decadence that Britain was able to enter and just destroy China in the century of humiliation, right? The opium wars, other things that, that was only made possible because you had, um, a decadence in the elites and a lack of development of the masses of China culturally. That was just, it was kind of like the same, a similar sort of problem you had with the French revolution, um, which was very different from the case of the U S right. Where the French, their, their elites were, were became stupid and decadent. They had access to culture, but they didn't have the, the moral development to do anything with it. And they were just living in their palaces and mansions. And thus they had no love for the people. Whereas the people who had a lot of heart, they didn't have the culture. They didn't have the development or education or literacy in France, whereas they did in the United States. And because of that lacking, they were easily turned into a mob that would that converted a potential Republican movement of France into a Jacobin bloodbath terror that killed everybody good and bad alike. If you were a scientist or if you were a good or a bad person of the elite, it didn't matter. You would lose your head. Um, so, you know, the, the problem of China was somewhat similar. There was a lack of balance of development. And, and Sun Yat-sen really wanted to correct that. He studied medicine and he brought his lessons that he learned of studying Lincoln's policies back to China so that when the revolution did succeed in 1911, um, he was nominated as the, to be the first president of China. And when he was in the United States, um, he learned he learned of this when he was organizing and he was like raising money in the USA. He was in Denver, Colorado, which was again William Gilpin's uh, backyard. That was his like headquarters. And he was uh, he then basically got on a plane and and went to China to to become the first president. But he he constituted the first China, the the Republic of China of 1911, around the three principles of the people of of a nation that he learned of as being viable only if it's founded on principles being made of the people, by the people, and for the people, um, which is, you know, he wrote a series of lectures, he gave a series of lectures, he wrote a book on this. And so the whole idea was that China was going to emulate the best aspects of the American experience as exemplified by the policies of Lincoln. He writes about this in depth. And then he goes further in another book on the international development of China, which people can get in, in uh, on archive.org. And he outlines all of the different infrastructure projects and science projects to build ports, rail, roads, industries um, all over China with the help of other nations, Russia, the USA, other European partners as allies of India. And in his book, this is a modern um, representation of the maps that Sun Yat-sen had commissioned with a lot of work in, in 1920. He was no longer president, but he was still a force. And uh, these are a few of the many rail lines that he had outlined for northern and southern uh, development of the interior so that it would no longer just be a nation uh, based upon uh, like exports of cheap stuff from coasts, but rather the development of all of the nation's interior. But as you could see, these rail lines also go into Afghanistan, into the Middle East, into India, into uh, the Caucasus, into Russia, 
um, and ultimately all the way into Europe. This is essentially the new Silk Road, okay? This is the, the revival of the Silk Road idea of the of 2000 years ago that had been revived under the, under the Tang dynasty of, of the eighth century that was attempted to be revived again in the 15th century under the uh, Zheng He, um, the great uh, navigator who tried a maritime Silk Road, but it had, it had been sabotaged sometime in the 1430s. We don't know the full story. And he was the first to try to revive this again under an idea of an international system of win-win cooperation, large-scale infrastructure. He, he advocates protectionism. And again, what's important about Sun Yat-sen, not only is he um, a Confucian Christian and a follower of Lincoln, but he's also loved on both mainland and in Taiwan. Two nations, I mean, two nations, I, Taiwan is a part of China, but Taiwan has been used as everyone knows. It's a, it's a, it's a colony of the US military industrial complex, and it has been used to create sort of like a, a Ukraine of the Pacific as part of a way to instigate a conflict with China. Now. The reality is Taiwan is was settled after the, the, the communists were victorious against Chiang Kai-shek, who was sort of the, the guy who took over the Kuomintang, the, 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 the leading political party ran by Sun Yat-sen. Chiang Kai-shek was not qualified for the job. The guy was a much lower level thinker, much more inclined to corruption and backstabbing. And when he failed to, to stay in control of China mainland, he basically went off with his troops and made a new you know colony, a new area on an island of Taiwan. And that became a US ally throughout the entire Cold War. And to this very day, there's a big problem, right? But despite that, both Taiwan and mainland China love Sun Yat-sen as a great hero and both claim him as their own. And the thing about Sun Yat-sen is you cannot categorize him as being a communist or a, a liberal capitalist. He, he's not any of those things, neither was Lincoln. He's a principled nationalist, but he's he's, he's a, a universal human being who thinks on that universal level. Right. So that's the real key thing right now. And, and he says it in his International Development of China. Um, and again, they have, they have parades celebrating Sun Yat-sen in China. Um, he says that the world has been greatly benefited by the development of America as an industrial and a commercial nation. So it developed China with her 400 millions of population will be another new world in the economic sense. The nations which will take part in this development will reap immense advantages. Furthermore, international cooperation of this kind cannot but help to strengthen the brotherhood of man. And, and uh, Gilpin made that same point earlier on, 30 years earlier, when he said the ancient Asiatic Colossus in 1890 in a certain sense, needed only to be reawakened, awakened to a new life. And European culture finds a basis there on which it can build future reforms. Getting across that it's not just America's salvation that, that rests upon uh, intercourse with Chinese civilization, which involves trade, cultural, science exchanges, but also Europe, which is far too corrupt and in, in, encrusted by oligarchical customs of these old families that go back to Babylon which are centered in London today as they were back in, in Gilpin's time, as they were at the time of the American Revolution. And what they want today is what they've wanted then, which is a global system of feudalism. They Just like today, they wanted back then um, a Malthusian religion devoted around population control. This is not a new thing. It's it, it's new that, that they have the additional twist of, uh, of a technocratic sort of you know, transhumanist flavor to it, but it's it's ultimately the same 
religion of depopulation of anti-humanism today as it is then. And the solution today is the same thing. And China, Russia, India, other countries, Iran, understand this. And when you look at the proceedings, don't just read Western uh, accounts of what happened at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization summits or the Caspian uh, summit that just happened a few days ago. But look at the, the actual transcripts, right? Go to the Russian website, go to the Chinese government website, go to the Indian websites, go to, go to these various countries, nations, governments, websites, and read the transcripts of their leaders who spoke. Look at the policies that they're doing. And what you find is that this is the nightmare that is keeping oligarchs up at night because they are in complete opposition to the Green New Deal. They're in opposition to creating false scarcity. They're in, in opposition to depopulation. And instead, they're invoking, as Sergei, Sergei Glaziev has made the point just this week, I published his speech on uh, the Canadian Patriot website. People could read the whole beautiful speech. Glaziev um, is, a, is a key figure, an advisor to Putin, and a leading figure around macroeconomic development of the Eurasian Economic Union. He's, he's a genius. This guy is a brilliant figure and a strategist. And he's been very clear that we're, we're fighting for the salvation of humankind as a species. And he's very clear of the terms of this current war that, are, that goes far beyond anything you see in Ukraine. Um, so that's it. I mean, it's, it's the same battle. It's the same principles, slight difference in context, but it's the same thing. And this is why it's so important that people sign up to your website and follow you, especially the the symposiums that you and your wife Cynthia host um, through your Telegram channels. It's so vital, folks, because it's important. Like you know, in the live chat, I was talking with uh, uh, Revolutionary Bliss, our, our very frequent listener, and she had the question about the Uyghurs and uh, the Uyghur persecution, which is a played up, nonsense, made up Western psyop. There is no Uyghur persecution, and we all know the reason why the West is focusing on Xinjiang is because Xinjiang is rich in hydrocarbons and is a very key choke point to the One Belt, One Road initiative. So Adrian Zanz, who was the guy who was commissioned by Western intelligence agencies to literally come up with and make up an entire story about persecuted Uyghur Muslims, uh, that, that's the guy behind it. Because this is what most people don't realize, and I'll, I'll explain this for you all to hear one last time. There is no Uyghur concentration camps. There's no Uyghurs being killed by the millions in China. That is bullshit. Okay? They want you to think. They want you to think that right now the number one singer in China is a Uyghur woman. A Uyghur Muslim woman is the number one pop singer in China. The Uyghur language is written on the Chinese currency. Uyghur students have an easier time to get into college than native ethnic Han Chinese students. The Uyghurs were never put on a one-child policy. One-child policy only affected the native Han Chinese. When China started to manage and govern Xinjiang, the Uyghurs their life expectancy was about 45 to 50 years old. It is now 73. They had 800 mosques in the region of Xinjiang. They today have over 23,000. Okay? The, 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 and, and then on top, I mean, think about it. Their, their language is on the currency. The most popular singer in China is a Uyghur person. Their, their kids have special halal kitchens in the universities that they have access to. All this done, and all this, and they're slaughtering the, the Uyghurs by the millions. It is bullshit. 
It is right, another line. Go ahead, buddy. Uh, and by the way, Brian Berlitek has a YouTube channel called New Atlas. He does some of the best. Oh, he does awesome. Yeah. yeah, you guys should have him on if you get if you guys we can need, get we need to get Brian, Brian on. He's he's amazing. Yeah, him and Brian and uh, Daniel Dunbrill, both of those guys. Dunbrill's great awesome too. YouTube channels that just take each of the claims being made as slanders against China and just destroy them uh, beautifully. Vanessa Billy's done some good work too, but um, just to get across the uh, the GDP the, in in the Xinjiang Autonomous Region has seen a per capita GDP increase of one hundred fold between nineteen seventy eight and twenty twenty. So 100-fold per capita GDP increase. Um, you already got across the longevity, um, has almost doubled in like 40 years. Um, the, in 1949, there was a 20% school enrollment of children. That is now 99.9% .9 today. Access the utilization of indigenous languages is not diminished. It has increased. Yep. There is no diminishing of the utilization of their languages or loss of the customs, while at the same time, they have access to high-speed rail development, better jobs, and within the re-education camps, because there are re-education camps, but the reason for that is that we have MI6 and the CIA, yep. since the 1970s, have been funding radical madrasas using Wahhabite versions of Islam with the help of the Saudis, which have now been increasingly cut off, thank God, as far as the Saudi participation in, in a lot of this, it's been reduced. But... Uh, this has been radicalizing Muslims all over that entire Central Asian, Southwest Asian zone, specifically originally to start, a, you know, to basically destroy, bleed the Soviet Union. But all of Al Qaeda, all of that problem, those problems that we have all came out of that U.S. CIA funded policy, which China shares a 70 kilometer border with uh, Afghanistan. It has suffered hundreds of terrorist attacks since since 2011. Uh, sorry, over 300. Three. Yep. Over 300. Yep. A lot of people have died. There have been explosions, open knife fights. People have been, I mean, there's so many. And so they had to deal with it in a, in a way which involved how do you de-radicalize people who are zombified and want to like get into um, heaven to, you know, get their 72 virgins and stop living their life of, of poverty. When you have CIA inputs coming in, how do you de-radicalize people? How do you give them something better? And that takes a lot of work if you don't want to bomb their country to the Stone Age, which is what the U.S. policy was. Um, they didn't, you know, China didn't do that. They instead had to create for the most radicalized groups. Um, they did. They had to create re-education centers. Now, does that mean it's a concentr concentration camp, a la Hitler? Not at all. Nobody's nobody's being killed in these things. They're learning trades. I mean, there, there, you could you could actually see people on the ground interviewing people who have been through the trade schools where they're learning civics, Mandarin, but they're also learning, again, steel making, all sorts of different useful skills, carpentry, and they're getting job opportunities that have high. These are better paying per capita than you realize much, much. I mean, compared to the prison labor, cheap labor uh, system that we have where American prisoners are getting paid 25 cents an hour to yep. work for the military industrial complex. There is nothing nearly that bad in China. They're given housing, they're given all sorts of amenities, uh, and they're given again crazy good job opportunities when they get out. Um, on top of that, you have mosques, twenty-four thousand mosques in Xinjiang, more yep. than most any other country in the world as far as Muslim countries. Um, you have, and that's from eight hundred mosques to twenty-four thousand. Yeah, that's insanely good. That is quite good. I mean, but I'm wait a minute, if they're, if they're trying to genocide them and wipe them out, why would they increase their per capita GDP? Why would they 
uh, increase their life expectancy? Why would they never instill a one-child policy on them? Why would they, uh, you know, give them more access to education and give them trade? Why would they do that? <laughs> no, it's a, and if you if you look at where is it coming from? I mean, it's the worst type of genocide. It's the most failed genocide in the world because the population is like two point five times more today than they were thirty years ago. Exactly. So that's the worst type of genocide. If they're trying that, they're failing badly. But number two. It's like, where is the information that we're being given that's being taken up by both, I mean, the left media, the right media, Tucker Carlson spews the same CAA funneled garbage as much as CNN does. It's the same talking points as much as like Bannon does and Epoch Times does, which is again, a CAA front yep. promoted or protected and maintained by Falun Gong, which is a Scientology cult with its alien uh, inter interstellar communicating messiah figurehead um, living in Philadelphia in a compound protected for the past 25 years by the CIA, um, who's been running a foreign government in exile to overthrow the Chinese government and running an international network of media outlets, uh, Epoch Times just being one of many and cultural uh, outlets. They're all using material that comes from things like the World Uyghur Congress. What is that? It's a German-based organization with some affiliates in Turkey, which have increasingly been uh, derooted. Um, receiving most of its money from the National Endowment for Democracy openly on their website. They even admit that they, that NED, a CIA front openly, has been providing them their money. And they, they make things up. They use anecdotal evidence to the wazoo. And they use just framing, narrative framing of images out of context to try to paint an, an image that in, induces scare, uh, fear uh, out of their viewers. And the There's global no West believes it. No. And if you go to people who actually live there and talk to them, which nobody does, you get a very different set of testimonies. And this includes also people living in, in Tibet. Similar yeah. story. Everything I just we just said about Xinjiang applies to also Tibet. Um, that's a whole other thing. But it's a lot of propaganda we've been given. It's Absolutely. All fake. I, revolutionary bliss. I hope that kind of addresses some of your, your concerns. But again, go to Brian Berlitek's New Atlas YouTube channel. Watch a lot of those videos. He does a remarkably good job. And uh, Daniel Dunbrill, also great job. If you can get... If I could, I could try to get their emails for you via or yeah, if you could reach out. Absolutely, especially yeah. at the end of this month, we'll be getting our YouTube channel back, so it'll be great to have them. Cool, fantastic. Right. We are at the end of the show, folks. Hope this has been eventful. Again, don't believe all the bullshit and BS out there. We have a, a large fight ahead, and it's important because when this country's economy collapses, and I'm talking about us, you know, you need to have the the right framework. Uh, in order to wake people up so we can help rebuild this nation. And again, folks, it's Matthew Eric. You can follow him over at CanadianPatriot.org as well as the TheRisingTideFoundation.net. Subscribe to his Substack. Join his Telegram group. Be actively involved in these awesome symposiums between him and his wife, Cynthia. It is truly remarkable and more than well worth your time. Thank you all for listening in. And with that being said, CJ, take it away.